This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, there aren't too many things as awe-inspiring as looking up on a clear night and seeing a star-studded sky. Really, like it's the best thing if you grow up in the country, obviously, but if you go camping, if you love that, or even in suburbia, you often get a really good view of the sky. Humans have been doing it since the beginning. It's helped us reflect, to make sense of the world. Maybe it's comforting knowing that we'll always see those stars far above us. Or will we? Because later we're going to be talking about our window to the universe and how it could change in the years ahead, because our breathtaking view of the stars might be replaced by a breathtaking view of satellites or nothing. We'll ask an expert because there's a lot of discussion around this at the moment. Also coming up, we're going to find out about the most significant environmental campaign in Australia's history. You may not know anything about it. It had huge implications, though. We'll be getting right into that one. First, though, hack. We're having friends, siblings, all types of people going into home ownership, and we need to move with the times, and we need to accept that different people are doing different things to get into home ownership. On Triple J. Hey, would you buy a property with your best mate? Or your brother or sister, maybe even a colleague, just someone you don't know too well, but who has the ability to buy a property with you. Maybe you've already done it. The whole idea of cracking the housing market, pretty daunting as we know, we cover this a lot. But it's also changing the way people are doing things. And from July, we found out over the past few days, millions of people are going to become eligible for government schemes that are trying to make it easier for people to buy a home. So the government announced yesterday it's going to broaden out the eligibility of the home guarantee scheme. And that means that you'll be able to apply for a home loan with a friend or parent or anyone really, and the government will act as your guarantor. I want to know, are you thinking about doing this? Are you single? And know that unless you team up with your mates, you don't have much of a chance of getting a property. Have you done it already? Did it work? Was it too messy? Let me know your experiences. Message in 0439 757 5. You can call in as well, 1300 536. In a bit, we're going to hear some of your stories. But first, Kimberly Price has been taking a look at some of these big changes the government's made. Home ownership seems a bit like a pipe dream for many of us ATM. But what if you and your bestie could join forces to own some property? Couples do it all the time. Two incomes make it a lot more attainable. So why not jump in on a house with mates or your sister or bro? Well now, the federal government is making it easier for you and another friend, sibling, parent to enter the property market together. It's quite a sizeable expansion to be confirmed in the budget in just nine days' time. Now that you'll just be able to have two people that are willing participants to go in, pull their money together and get a 5% deposit, that opens the way for siblings, a parent and a child, if you're two mates. From July 1, changes to the Home Guarantee Scheme will see two people able to jointly apply for the First Home Guarantee and the Regional First Home Guarantee. The government will act as a guarantor for up to 15% of the loan, meaning you and your buddy will only need to pull together 5% of the deposit and not pay the super expensive lender's mortgage insurance. If you're single and the legal guardian of children, the Family Home Guarantee will become available to you and the government will act as your guarantor for up to 18% of the loan. And permanent residents can now apply for all three of the schemes. 
In 2021, Cam was ready to build his own house in Tassie. I put my name on a waiting list for some blocks of land in Lagana. Once I finally secured that block of land, I realised I didn't have the funds or couldn't have the borrowing power to actually do something with it. Cam then turned to his mate Jeb, who was also looking for a house. We had a bit of a chat about it and decided, you know, combining our borrowing power, we could actually do something quite decent here. Cam and Jeff have pretty much been friends since the womb. They lived in rentals together and never had issues there. And we had lots of people saying to us, like, why would you ever do that? Um, you're, you're risking a lot here. And, you know, we just thought, well, there's no other way to go about it at the moment. So we just bit the bullet and went for it. Cam says the legalities were pretty much the same for the mates as they would be for a couple. The thing we really had trouble with was finding a bank that would actually lend us the money. We had to go guarantor for each other as we kind of, you know, liable for each other. Aside from that, we've kind of just got written agreements slash contract, I guess you'd say, between each other. Having been friends for so long, Cam and Jeb were pretty comfortable in sorting out all the legal work together. We've got a bit of a four-year plan in place. For other people that are interested in doing this, seeking legal advice would probably be recommended. Use your due diligence there. And would they recommend this to others? Things have been really good, no issues whatsoever. We're slowly chipping away at landscaping and all other little jobs we've got to do. So, yeah, can't really complain there. Hack on Triple Jack. Kimberly Price with that story. Yeah, we did ask to have a chat with the Federal Housing Minister, Julie Collins. She was not available. I am asking you, though, are you thinking about buying a property with mates? Is it something you'll look at in the future, maybe? I don't know. Not everyone's going to be able to do this, obviously, but some people are clearly doing it. We're hearing from you on the text line right now. Messages as well on Instagram. Alex says, I own a house with parents. I'm buying them out this week. That's huge, Alex. Someone else says, surprise, so many hack listeners have investment properties. Cassie says, yep, I own six properties with my brother. Cassie, who is your brother? Prince William, because that's crazy. What the hell? Tara says, my brother and I built a house as an investment for $400,000, sold it a year later for $1.1 million. Look, a lot of young people are getting into this or have done it, you know, years ago. I want to dive into this issue a bit more with someone who's financial expert, Hack's favourite financial expert, Melissa Brown. Melissa, welcome back to Hack. Thanks for having me. What do you reckon? Do you reckon these changes to the Home Guarantee Scheme are a good idea, like changing the definition of a couple from meaning married or de facto to any two eligible individuals? Yeah, I love it. And that's because there are more singles than ever before. And what we want is to have creative solutions to be able to buy property if that's something that we want to do. So I think it's a really good thing. It does seem like a really big step, like a huge financial commitment that maybe if you were making it with a partner, it wouldn't it wouldn't be as big of a deal. But when it's a friend, you start thinking about all kinds of things. What should you be wary of? Or how do you protect yourself? Look, there are so many ways that you can. Uh, And it's really important to remember that, you know, 50% of all marriages fail. So it's not like uh, (laughs) just because we're in a marriage (laughs) and we've bought a property that that's going to be set in stone. So there's a few things that you can do to really protect yourself. Um, One is you want to be tenants in common and not joint tenants so that you own 50% of it or whatever percentage you agree. So you actually don't need to own half of it each. It could be a different percentage. And that also means you can put that in your will. Uh, rather than automatically going to the other person if something happens. 
The other thing you want to do is get an agreement. So go to a, a solicitor and have an agreement drawn up because this is essentially a business that you're having, to, you're approaching together and you want things in there like, well, what if our circumstances change? What if one gets sick? What if I meet someone and change my mind? What if my income changes? So it's kind of coming up with what if the worst case happens what would we do then? And even agreed amounts if one wants to sell and one doesn't. And then the third thing is life insurance. So you can take out life insurance on each other and that would actually be a really sensible thing to do so that if the worst was to happen and you want to be able to afford to be able to buy the other one out, you actually could. That's like very practical advice there. Uh, so interesting to hear. We're getting a lot of messages through. Someone says, never, ever go into partnership with property with a sibling. Uh, we did it. My sister's cut me off for years, even though we agreed on everything back then. Look, sometimes things do not work out, as we're hearing. Uh, someone else says, I plenty use the bank of mum and dad. Why not team up with a sibling or mate? The banks shouldn't care so long as the payments are made. Let's go to someone else, a caller now. Rachel from Hobart's on the line. Rachel, wh- what have you done? You've had a bit of experience in this area. So I bought a house two years ago in Hobart with my housemate who I'd lived with for two years. Okay. Um, and it was just... I mean, the fixed rates at the time were so low, so our mortgage ended up lower than rent. So it just made sense to do that. And and has it been pretty smooth sailing? It's been weirdly smooth sailing. I think <laughs> I don't. I know that not that's not every situation, but I think we just knew we lived together really well before we well, decided yeah. to do it. And that's the thing, I guess, like when you have lived with a housemate for a long time, um, you do develop these really trusting relationships and you feel like, hey, if we can do that, if we can get over the wars over who's cleaning the kitchen up, we can probably uh, invest in a house <laughs> or maybe not. Rachel, thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it. I am speaking with Melissa Brown, financial expert, about uh, these changes that the government's making. Melissa, do you think it's a good idea to maybe consider doing this, jumping in a partnership with a friend, a sibling, someone, or waiting to do it alone as a single so it's 100% yours? Look, I think it, the answer is always, for me, it depends. So if you've worked out your plan, and this is something that you can still do on yourself, by yourself, it might just take you a couple of years longer, then sure, you might think about waiting. But if it's something that you and a friend look at doing together it's you and you approach it like a business, and particularly if it's not a home, if it's an investment that you're thinking of doing together, then it could be a really smart thing. But I think too many people are thinking, oh, I have to do this because I'm renting now. But I think it's also being creative about that. You know, we can get rid of our whole cost of renting and find that deposit faster by house sitting or poor sitting or, or, or pet sitting. So it's being creative around all of it rather than just going to the obvious. I was going to say, like, is there, if you have some advice to young people now who might have, and I mean, a lot of people don't have any spare cash, it's the opposite. Mm. Some people might have a little bit. What kind of advice would you be giving in terms of what they should be doing? Should it be more money into super? Should it be trying to um, stash away something for a house deposit? What do you reckon? Yeah, again, the answer is it depends. Like yeah. That's always my answer because it depends on your circumstances and what your goals are. And that's going to be different for every single person. But my my suggestion is you want to, especially if you're a young person, the thing you have, your superpower is time. 
So what you want to do is start early. So whether that's saving for a deposit, start now. If it's starting to invest, start now. Because that compounding interest, that that time that you have is absolutely your superpower. You know, $200 invested every month into shares or into something similar. In 30 years' time, that's going to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, whereas you might not miss 50 bucks a week. Well, as always, you've got all of the info. Financial expert, (laughs) Melissa Brown, we appreciate you breaking that down for us. Thanks for answering our questions. No problems. Got so many more messages coming through on the text line. Someone says, it's not a case of different people doing different things. It's a case of what we're forced to do to make ends meet. Hobber and Hing were right. They should be addressing the affordability issues. And, yeah, we will be putting those issues to the government. We're going to keep trying to get the housing minister on. We're going to keep trying to speak to politicians about what they're doing uh, about rent because we know that's the biggest issue for, for most of you. So we'll keep you posted. Hack. We're all fighting for the same thing, not just the Franklin River, but for a better world, and the world's in a hell of a mess. And it's good to see so many people enjoying making that change here in our own backyard in Tasmania. On Triple Jack. You know, we're seeing more and more protests over the environment around the world. Like, it seems like every day there's a blockade or a walkout, a rally demanding more protection for our natural world or more action on climate change. Maybe you've been part of one or a few over the past few years. Most of the time it is young people leading these movements, as we've seen. There's a really long history, though, and you might not have heard about Australia's most famous environmental campaign ever because it happened before a lot of you were born. It was the Franklin River blockade in Tasmania. I'm going to be honest, I didn't know much about it, but more than 1,400 people got arrested in these protests, had a massive impact on politics in Australia as well. And there's a new podcast that takes you through this massive part of Australia's history. We're so lucky because it's hosted by our very own Joe Lauder, environmental correspondent, also the host of our Who's Gonna Save Us podcast. Joe, hello. Hello, thanks for having me back. <laughs> you got another podcast. Oh my gosh. We loved Who's Gonna Save Us. Can you tell us a bit more about this one? What what's it about and and how does it play out? Yeah, so this is Saving the Franklin, and like you said, it's looking back at the Franklin River campaign, which is the most famous environmental campaign or fight in Australia. Happened before I was born. It happened before most of our listeners were born. And because of that, I knew there was a bit of mythology around it, especially with older environmental campaigners, but I didn't know the full story, and it's crazy. And so it it was over this proposal to dam the Franklin River for a hydroelectric scheme. And it's this really pristine landscape in the southwest of Tasmania that is very remote, very rugged. It's got these huge rocky gorges. It's one of the last temperate rainforests in the world. And it's just, it's incredibly lush and it's a rare part of the world. And so they were really concerned about this proposal to dam it. So it would have flooded a lot of that forest. And so the campaign went on for about eight years over the late 70s to the 80s. And it culminated in this massive blockade, like you said, 1,400 people arrested in the rainforest. But it also involves so much politics of the day and it actually ends up in this high court battle between the state government and the federal government. And it also led to the birth of environmental politics in Australia. So there's like, there's so much going on. Well, let's have a little listen to some of the audio from this podcast. So I decided 40 years on, it's time to revisit the Franklin. It was a civil war within Tasmania. 
fucking little greedy fucking So I have these images that are to this day still traumatic for me. My job is now on the line and my husband's is on the line. We want to work. We are not bludgers. We don't want to line up at the doll office and get the doll. All these political battles were among the white people. A protest to save a river in which the protest and its coverage became far more important than the river itself. I want to know, when it comes to a fight for the environment, what does it take to win? It's going to move me to tears to think about what a group of people in their early 20s achieved. That's the moment I thought, oh, we're going to win this. If enough people stand up, if enough people care, we can win. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I'm hooked. I want to listen to all of the episodes right now. They're not all out, but there are a few episodes out already, so you can you can binge a bit. I'm speaking with Joe Lauder, the host of Saving the Franklin podcast that takes you through one of Australia's most famous environmental fights, probably the most famous environmental fight in Australia. Joe, why was the campaign so controversial and divisive? Like, what were the arguments here? Well, the main one, which we still hear a lot today, um, especially it's been around a lot with um, climate change and the environment, is really around jobs. This narrative of jobs versus the environment really started back then or really, really came to the fore because this hydroelectric scheme would have created a lot of jobs in this part of Tasmania that was quite economically depressed at the time. And a lot of locals just wanted steady, secure employment. And in Tasmania, the Hydroelectric Commission, which was, um, you know, the body that was pushing for, for the dam and would have built it, they were seen as incredibly powerful as well. And they had a lot of political influence. They were they were kind of a part of but slightly separate to the government, but they were seen as more powerful than the government. And so you you had that dynamic of a lot of people just in regional areas that didn't have many other employment opportunities wanting that work. And then you had a lot of what they saw as outsiders coming in and they felt like um, it was outsiders telling them what to do. So that was why in Tasmania especially it was really, really controversial. Can you tell us a bit more about the blockade itself? Like, what was that? How did it work? So this all culminated. There's been years of politicking. They roll a premier over this issue. It's kind of, there's a lot of back and forth. And then the dam is still going ahead. So they make the decision to have a blockade in this very incredibly remote part of Tasmania. And so they decide where the dam is being built. So this is upriver by boat in this remote part um, of Tasmania. And so they get over this one summer, they get over 1,400 people arrested by blocking the work. Um, people w- would literally, in their uni holidays, fly to Tasmania, drive over there, wow. do these, the, they had these protest camps where you had to, for a couple of days, learn how to do nonviolent protest. Then you go there, you get arrested, you either go to jail for a few days or you fly back home. And so over 1,400 people did this and hundreds of people actually made the decision. They um, decided not to agree with the bail conditions and they went to jail and so they blocked up the whole Tasmanian prison system as well because they were just, it was overflowing because they had so many people going to jail. This is wild. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Joe Lauder, our very own, but also host of the Saving the Franklin podcast, which is out now. You can go listen to it. Fascinating 
uh, retelling of one of the biggest moments in Australia's environmental history. Joe, you've covered a lot of climate change protests, um, uh, activism in your time in journalism. And when we look back at history, we're always trying to figure out what we can learn. Are there parallels to what we see today? Do you see kind of parallels with the kind of environmental activism we see right now? Yeah, I think there are so many parallels and that's why I was really drawn to this story. One is a really obvious one is that this movement was really led by young people. People, Some of them are quite famous names these days, you know, like Christine Milne, who is from the Greens and Bob Brown, a lot of other environmental activists. They weren't environmental activists all the time. They were doctors and teachers and they got involved because of this, because they were young people who were inspired. And I think a lot of um, modern protests and activism like blockades, like very visible climate protests that we see, a lot of those tactics, you can draw a lot of parallels to the Franklin because it was the first major, major success in terms of environmental protesting. So a lot of those tactics about getting attention to your cause really come back from then. And then the other thing as well that I I see as a big parallel is there are a lot of moments in this campaign where it seemed like all hope was lost and it seemed like for sure the dam was going to go ahead and the conservationists were really despairing about that yet somehow kept campaigning. And I think that's a, there are a lot of parallels with what we see today with um, climate change activists as well. Was there anything that you learnt that kind of surprised you that you thought, oh, that's pretty amazing? One thing that I didn't know about was there's another campaign that we look into that comes right before this, which was similar, which was a failure around another lake that was um, flooded. And it actually started, this is in Tasmania, the very first what you'd call Greens but environmental political party in the whole world. And I didn't really know that environmental politics in terms of political parties started in Tasmania. It seems like a very European concept. Oh, so like the Greens was the first of its type, you're saying, in the world. Yeah, so it was a precursor to that. It's called the United Tasmania Group, but it's considered internationally the birth of Greens politics or environmental politics, which is very, yeah, very interesting. And then the other thing that I didn't know was... There was this rediscovery on um, the Franklin River of a, there was a cave and it had archaeological evidence of occupation um, from, you know, the first Tasmanians from 20,000 years ago. And so that's also really pivotal because that that's really key to them saving it. But that, that understanding of archaeological history in this part of Tasmania 20,000 years ago, because at the time it was an ice age, And so Tasmania was, you know, it was an Arctic tundra then, which is, you know, phenomenal to think about. So learning so much about that Aboriginal heritage as well was really fascinating. And I didn't know about that. It's fascinating, the whole story. And it's been put together in this beautifully crafted uh, piece of audio over several episodes, which you can find right now. You can get it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You just got to search for Saving the Franklin. And we know Joe Lauder done a spectacular job as always. Joe, thanks for breaking it all down for us and speaking with us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. We got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, my mum and dad were honeymooning at the time of the Franklin Dam protest. The petrol station refused to sell my parents petrol because they thought they were protesters because of their van. Very divisive time. That was from Laura in Tassie. Another person shouting us out saying, Hack is the worst at nepotism. Come on. 
I think we'll... I don't think we call it nepotism when we interview our own reporters about work we're doing. That's our job. Hack. It's starting to get so congested, we don't know exactly what's up there anymore. On Triple J. Hey, we're so lucky in Australia with our spectacular view of the night sky. Is there anything better than looking up at that huge, infinite space with all those sparkling, shiny satellites, I mean stars, and pondering questions of the universe. Nah, but honestly, there is a lot of discussion about our view of the stars at the moment because as the years go on, we're sending more satellites up there. There's space junk, there's all this light here on Earth and it's changing things. And some people are predicting that in the next decade, we're going to be seeing up to half a million more objects in the sky. So what is that going to mean for us down here when we look up? Not only for stargazing, but also in terms of safety, with space getting so crowded. We've got Dr Brad Tucker, astrophysicist from ANU, with us. Dr Brad, thanks for joining us on Hack. Yeah, no worries. Is the night sky going to be a lot brighter in the decades ahead than it is now? Well, it's going to be yeah, very different, right? Because every little satellite appears as this little bright dot that moves across the sky. And so while you don't have a, you know, a, a huge size of them in terms of physically, when you just have so many of them, it looks like flies moving around the sky, right? Like you're almost being bombarded by these things. And then you add the natural fact that most of us live in cities, so we have light pollution. So, you know, Sydney, Melbourne, it's very hard already to see the nighttime sky because of our artificial lights on the ground. And then the only thing you'll start to see or see more of are these little satellites going across. It will fundamentally change our interaction, view, culturally, spiritually, um, and scientifically of the nighttime sky in the universe. Do you think we're going to see fewer of the things that we've been seeing for thousands of years as the years go on? Yeah, it, it, our experience is changing. You know, as you said, you know, we'd love to go out into the bush, go hiking, you know, especially in Tasmania, right? There's so many beautiful areas that we were just hearing about in Tasmania. And so you look up in the sky and you see the bright stars in the Milky Way. Now imagine sun. Oh, you kind of see the stars. You still see the Milky Way, but there's all these things flying in front of you. And you can see satellites. So you either see them right after sunset or right before sunrise. And it takes about two hours for that completely to disappear because it's reflected sunlight. Sun's bouncing off those satellites and down to Earth. So imagine now it's the summer. And the summer, the night's already shorter, so you lose two hours of seeing all these satellites at the beginning of the night, and then two hours at the end of the night. Well, you're probably not going to be awake at 2 a.m., or if you are, you're probably seeing something else. Um, so it's going to be hard to enjoy that view that we've come to grow and love, especially on this continent, for the past 60,000 years, that is now fundamentally different because of humans' interactions in space. It does sound like we're on the verge, or we're currently experiencing this huge boom in terms of satellites being sent up, and these experts are telling us more and more are being sent up all the time. And obviously that's going to mean amazing things for connectivity on the planet, for uh, places around the world that maybe aren't connected in terms of internet and stuff like that. That's all going to change, which is good news. What about the space junk aspect though, Dr. Brad, like deorbiting things? When are we really going to start taking a lot of space junk out of the skies? Because it must be hugely expensive. It is. And that, that is kind of the problem, right? Right now you're up to goodwill and countries that decide on their own. Australia's world leading in legislation, you actually have to have a plan of how you're going to come back down. So you can't be left up there as junk. But there are bits 
that lasts for a long time. So the further away you are from Earth, the longer you are in space because there's less drag to bring you down. So even if you're at 900 kilometers, and to put this in the scale, the International Space Station's at about 500 or so, at 900 kilometers, you can be up there for close to 100 years. You, there will be bits from, say, the Apollo era that outlast human civilization. Wow. And there are, yeah, that's the thing, right? It is like a, you know, it's just as the issues we talk about with climate change and physically changing our world, we're physically changing the space environment. So people have to do things. And then even if it comes back down, sometimes it lands on the ground. In fact, there was famously bits from SpaceX that crashed into New South Wales that I went out and classified when the farmers found this 100 kilogram piece of debris in their paddock. So none of this is a great solution. So right now, Australia, again, is doing a lot. We're developing systems to try and clean it up. But right now it's who pays for it? Who's responsible for it? How do we deal with it? And so the same discussions we have on the environmental impact here on Earth are now the same discussions we have in space, except it's now destroying a whole new domain to some degree. But, you know, but as you said, there's the flip side of positive. So we do need space and we need space technology, but we have to do something about it before we genuinely change our interaction and interaction with Earth. It's so interesting. And as you say, Australians are kind of really leading some of this. Like I was reading an article just before about how a startup uh, was trying to develop this kind of vacuum for satellite debris and make that happen, which seems incredible itself. Uh, There's so much that's happening in this space. You're always right across it. And we appreciate you filling us in. Dr. Brad Tucker from ANU, thank you so much for your time. No worries. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.